Take your Bibles, turn to me the book of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are uh, continuing our series on Sermon on the Mount and uh, journeying into the third of three chapters that are dedicated to that, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. Today we're going to start chapter 7 and we're going to spend the next three weeks. So today and two more weeks on this Sermon on the Mount and we're going to Uh, Move on to a different series after that. I hope it's been a good series for you to hear and to be reminded of some truths that we know. And today we're going to look at, as I mentioned earlier, um, one of the most recognizable statements in the Bible. In fact, if you just begin to Google um, words and ask questions, most of you know this, right? That Google will try to predict what you're going to ask for. Autocomplete, they'll try to predict And so when you start to type in words, for instance, like the Bible says not to. All right. So we've got a picture here says the Bible says not to. And you start to look down that list. This one is on there. So the Bible says not to eat pork. We, you know, I don't those must be bacon haters there. The Bible says not to judge. The Bible says not to judge others. The Bible says not to eat. I don't think that's true. And so the Bible says not to eat shrimp. A lot of people really concerned about their diet, apparently, on this. But right in the middle, right in the middle are these two. Bible says not to judge or the Bible says to not to judge others. Or if you put in the Bible says don't. It's a very similar list. Except for the one about eating bats, which I think... Must be a new phenomenon related to the current situation we're in. Cutting your hairs on there. But up at the top, the number one suggestion is the Bible says don't judge. So the verse we're talking about today and the verses surrounding it is the verse that says in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you won't be judged. Or the uh, King James version of that, judge not lest ye be judged or Just basically people say, don't judge me. You can't judge me. Do not judge. The question is, why is that such a popular verse? Why do non-Christians love that verse? And they do. If you ask non-Christians their most, their favorite verse in scripture that they'll list a lot of times, John 3.16. But one of the ones up there is, I really like that, don't judge verse. The reason it's so popular is because they think It speaks to two parts of our culture that our culture in general holds dear. Those two things are, first of all, that religion is private. Like, you don't judge me. That's my deal. That's my religion. That's my part. That's my thing. And secondary to that, and alongside that, is not only is religion private, but that morality is relative. That's what's good for you is good for you, but that may not be good for me. And so they take this phrase that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the midst of a sermon about who we are to be as kingdom citizens for the kingdom of God, and they say, see, even your Jesus says, you can't talk to me about my religion or my beliefs because that stuff's private and it's relative to who I am and where I am and what I believe and what I want to happen. And even your Bible says, don't judge. Christians like it because they like to tell people, you can't judge me. Mind your own business is what that means. That's what people think don't judge means, right? Mind your own business. Well, today, here's what we're going to talk about. What did Jesus mean by this? 
What did Jesus mean by do not judge so that you won't be judged? Well, let me tell you, first of all, that there's no getting around the fact that he does say here, do not judge. It's not a there's not a question mark. Or there's not a you may say do not judge. But I say this is Jesus in a direct statement saying do not judge. In fact, when you look at the commentaries and the scholars and you look up people asking questions about this particular passage of scripture, one of the things that they talk about is that it kind of interrupts the flow of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if Jesus is going to interrupt the flow, that it must be something he means. It must be something that's important to him, that it doesn't necessarily flow with what we just talked about and all that we've talked about over the last few weeks, and that it's kind of a jarring change to what's coming when he stops and says, don't judge couple of things about the phrasing of this from the original language that are important for us. And then we're going to read the rest of those six verses that are in here in this little section together and then talk about what they mean. The first thing that's important to understand is that when the word judge is used here, it doesn't necessarily mean just being critical or just assessing something that's wrong. That's not what is intended by this word. The word here, judge, was used in Declaring a sentence of condemnation. It's a condemnation. It's a, you are done. Like it is over. Like we have determined you are guilty as charged and there's no hope for you to recover. It was a death sentence. And so when it says do not judge, the first thing it says, it's not saying don't tell me something's wrong. It's saying when you look at someone, don't condemn them because of who they are or what they've done, or where they've come from. The second thing that's important to understand in this is that this is, in the original language, what they call a present imperative, which means that it means an ongoing action. And so it could basically be saying, don't continuously condemn people. Don't continuously say someone is gone, or done, or finished. Let's read the rest of these verses in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and give context to what he says. Starting again with verse 1. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, take the beam of wood out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Okay, verse six is weird. All right. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? You talk about it doesn't kind of flow. We'll talk about it in a minute, but I, listen, I have looked through commentaries and Bible studies and theological books this week to try to get a good grasp of what verse 6 is. I think I've got a little bit of a grasp on it, but I can tell you they don't. The people I read don't. They are working through all kinds of stuff. It's weird. And it's okay sometimes to say it's weird. Amen? I mean, the Bible sometimes says things that we're like, I don't quite understand that, and there's some cultural difference here. But when you look at the whole of what's happening here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, what you do have is Jesus definitely giving a command not to judge and then giving the 
context around it, the shade around it for us to understand. So what does he mean by that? Well, I can tell you what it does not mean. And I am pretty confident of this. I'm very confident of this. That what he does not mean there is that we are never to tell someone when they're doing something wrong. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean that we are to walk around and go, ooh, they're really messing up. They're doing some bad things. I'm just going to let it slide. That's not what is meant here. Now, we know that because Jesus spent almost entire ministry telling people what they were doing wrong. In just a few verses, he's going to tell them, listen, there's a narrow way and a wide way, and I'm warning you to get on the narrow way. He literally is going to call the Pharisees and the scribes, he uses the word hypocrite here, we talked about that word a few weeks ago. In a few chapters, he's going to look at them and call them hypocrites. He's going to call them a brood of vipers. His followers told people when they were doing wrong. John the Baptist lost his head literally because he called out the sexual sin of Herod. Paul would tell us that we are to rebuke the works of darkness. And so what Jesus does not mean here is that we are never to call something wrong, wrong. That we are never to correct someone. So what does he mean? What does he mean by that phrase, do not judge? Because that's how the world uses it. That's how non-Christians use it. That's how even Christians use it. Like your God says, don't even judge. So how are you able to judge me? And what they mean by that is, don't tell me what I'm doing wrong. You can't do that. Here's what I think Jesus is meaning by this. And I think we're going to look at two or three things in this passage that are needed for correction. And the first one is the one that is almost always talked about. The last two, I think, are sometimes missed. And the first thing that we need to understand is, what Jesus is saying here is that we are not to size up someone and write them off. Don't size someone up, look at them, see something that's going on with them, understand what's happening in their lives. Maybe there's a sin issue, maybe there's a background issue, maybe it's from where they came from, what they're doing, who they're with, what the future might hold for them. You don't look at anybody, size them up, and then write them off. You're done. It's over. No hope. You don't make a judgment about someone's eternal salvation. You don't make a judgment about someone's next day. You don't make a judgment about who they could become, who they can't become, what could happen or what can't happen in their lives. You don't look at someone and size them up and then go, I'm done with you. You're dead to me. It's over. Now, the reason for that are two reasons, and he gives these in here. The first is because when we do that, when we look at someone and we write them off, we just dismiss them completely because of who they are, what they've done, what they've done to us, where they hang out, who they hang out with, what their particular sin may be. When we do that, we first of all deny the goodness and the power and the grace of God. Now, we get that in this verse when he says, you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. The, the way that that is being interpreted, the way that's understood in the original is this, that, that basically you want to treat other people, it's the golden rule kind of with judgment, judge like you want to be judged. And what he's saying is, do you want God to write you off? Do you want God in the ultimate judgment to say there's no hope for you? And what we have to remember is that the purpose and the plan in the goodness and the grace and the power of God is always to redeem. It's always to save. It is always to bring back from death. Amen. You think about perhaps the most famous verse 
is John 3.16. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3.17 is just as important in this realm. And people don't quote that as much, right? John 3.17 says God did not send his son into the world to do what? To condemn the world. But that in order that through him the world might be saved. What it's basically saying here is that we have a God who had every right to look at us and write us off. There is nothing in me that is worthy of being rescued because of who I am and the goodness of me. And yet God did not write us off. And so when we look at our fellow human beings, we can't, in the midst of that, just look at them and say, sorry, I'm done with you. You're hopeless. You'll never amount to anything. And it's not even saying it verbally. Sometimes we just think it. God came to save us in spite of our evil. Yet, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And when we look at someone and we write them off, we are denying the fact that God can work and do miracles in their lives. The second reason, and this is the whole plank and log and speck and splinter, the second reason that we shouldn't do that is because it minimizes our own sinfulness. It's kind of a hyperbolic, silly picture here, right? Where it says, how can you look at the speck? The the word there, the, the translation that we read is from the Christian Standard Bible. and The word there is a speck. It's not really a splinter, but when you compare it to law, they kind of put that. But it's the idea of something tiny in the corner of the eye that is barely perceptible. And you focus on that when you've literally got a... The, the word used here is like a plank or a log that would have been used as the base of foundation for a house. We're not talking about a little something. We're talking about a plank. And it says, how ridiculous would it be for you to focus on the speck in the eye of your brother or sister and you have a log literally protruding from your face? The point that Jesus is making, and we'll talk about this for just a moment, is that it is so much easier for us to see someone else's sin before we see our own. Amen? What does he call us when we do that? Hypocrites, right? You remember that word a few weeks ago? It means actors from the Greek place. Someone that put on a mask and played a different role. He said you're not being authentic to who you are. You're not being authentic to the role of Christ in your life. You are acting. You are playing. This week, I uh, thought about over and over again as I read this passage of Scripture, that scene with the woman caught in adultery. The Bible says that Jesus came and sat down to teach. And as he's sitting down to teach over in John chapter 8, that they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. You remember this story? What does Jesus do when they bring the woman? Before he speaks, what does he do? He starts writing on the ground. Man, wouldn't you love to know what he was writing? 
It doesn't give us any idea. It doesn't say what's there. It just says that he's stooping down and he's writing. And there are all kinds of speculation out there. There's some that just said he's doodling, he's drawing, just kind of passing the time or waiting for them to bring the accusation. And there are others that think that he is listing the law, the Ten Commandments, right? The, the law of the Lord, that he's starting to list that down there. Or some that say he may have been writing out the particular sins of the people in the crowd. Now, the truth is, we won't know that until we get to heaven and we are in this, what I did in John chapter 8 class. I don't know that's what it'll be called, but he'll be there. But whatever he writes, the men say, what are you going to do, Jesus? What's going to happen here? What are you going to do? She was caught. We caught her. We caught her. We got her. The picture that you have there is almost of this angry mob with stones in their hands. And they say, the law says to stone her, what do you say? Now it tells us that they did that to trap him, right? That they, they, they had a way out either way. Because if Jesus says, don't worry about the law, she's fine. Then they could go, ah, you do not believe in the law of God. If he says, then stone her, they'll go, oh, what's all your lovey-dovey stuff, Jesus? They brought this question to trap him. And Jesus says he looks up. And then he says to them. Okay. Let you who is without sin throw the first stone. And then he goes back to writing. I just love that image, right? Like just writing away. Okay, whoever's first, y'all go ahead. I'll be, I'll be here. And so Jesus effectively disarms them literally of their stones in that moment by reminding them of the sin in their own lives. And when we begin to cast judgment and dismiss people, not only do we deny the power that God can show in rectifying and restoring their lives, we are denying that we are in a similar situation that are only made right because of the power and the grace and the goodness of God. And sometimes it's easy to see that when there are heinous sins that are going on, that, that we, you know, we look at someone and the sins of the culture of that day are being displayed in front of you and perhaps in your life, you don't have the sins that are deemed bad by the culture of that day. And so you're able to kind of, it's easy to see the hypocrisy that happens that way sometimes. Um, I went to school at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, I'm very proud of that. It's a great school down in, um, down in Texas. One of the first, or the first big founder of that school or president of that school is a guy named B.H. Carroll. And in their rotunda, this formal kind of place, they have oil paintings of each of the presidents. And if you look at B.H. Carroll's, his hand is slid into a pocket. And it looks a little weird. And so as you're doing the rotunda, they tell you that the reason that his hand is slid into a pocket is that it was not always that way, but in his hand he's holding a cigar, which was deemed okay in their day. But as, pre, as subsequent generations came, they didn't know if they wanted the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary pictured with a cigar, so they painted over a pocket. They covered over his sin with a painting. 
And sometimes what happens is that we have people in front of us or in our lives that are more obviously in sin when it comes to the sins that are deemed particularly inappropriate in our culture in our day that are changing and shifting regularly. And we seem to be okay with that. And so as we're casting judgment, we're denying the fact that we are ourselves sinful people. And what Jesus is speaking to here is not just the heinous, obvious sins. What he's also talking about is the moral failure that we have in our own hearts and that we do not grapple with our own sinfulness enough and the grace and the mercy that is required for us to be saved. I am not a man who was in need of a Savior. I am a man who is in need of a Savior. You know what I think is interesting about this particular passage when Jesus is saying this? He doesn't say, hey, and when you see the speck in your brother's eyes, notice he doesn't say, if you have a log in your own eye, take it out. There's no if there, is there, right? It's understood that there's a log. Now, he's not here and saying, and don't hear this, he's not saying your sin is worse than everybody else's sin. But what he is pointing out is that your sin is equal to the sin that you see. Christian doctrine is that we are sinful, evil at our core. And sometimes we cover up our own problems by pointing at the problems of others when there is a disease inside of us that if left unchecked will destroy us. We have to be aware of our own sinfulness. Leon Morris says this, Jesus is pointing out a curious feature of the human race in which we have a profound ignorance of ourselves and that is so often combined with an arrogant presumption that we know everything about others, especially their faults. We are profoundly ignorant about ourselves and think we know everything about others. And what Jesus is saying here is, in your own life, be aware of, constantly strive to mitigate the effects of the disease that is ravaging your body. We live in a weird time, strange time. I mean, just if you think about it, if someone had asked us last, um, last August if we would imagine the scheduling of schools that we have now, if we would have imagined what's going on in church, that we are celebrating, that we are finally reopening children's ministry next week. Like, well, what happened? We didn't do children's ministry? Why did you? And that we have, we are, we are excited that we have about 35% of our people attending on Sunday morning from our average. That's, that's exciting. But if you would have told us that year ago, like, um, what happened? Right? And there's this disease that is out there that is scaring and ravaging and all kinds of issues in our country from it. We're praying for that. One of the things that I've begun praying is this, because I have been praying for a cure. I've been praying that God would take it away. But here's my reality. Here's the thing that I know for sure. God is going to take it away. I have no doubt about that. He's going to take away every disease, every illness, every sin in our lives. He's taking it away, ultimately. The thing that I've begun praying is that, God, whether you are taking it away at the second coming of the Lord and come quickly, Lord Jesus, amen, 
If you're going to take it away at the second coming of the Lord, praise be to God. If you're going to take it away now, praise be to God. Help me in the midst of this to figure out as a pastor and as a dad and as a member of our community how best we can handle this virus until you take it away. I think about my own life. See, I have a disease that if you just looked at me from the outside, most people wouldn't be able to tell. Now, I do wear a pump, which kind of gives it away sometimes, but for the longest time, people just thought that was a pager until nobody wears a pager anymore. All right? But I'm insulin dependent, type 1 diabetic, and if I left that disease uncontrolled, it would ravage my body. It's unseen. You can't see it. You can't see what's going on. You have no idea what my blood sugar is right now or how it's been over the last few weeks. All of that. And I can put on a good face even if it's been bad. I can put on a face that's been good. You can't tell the difference. But here's what I'm praying because I know, again, God is going to heal me from diabetes. I don't have any doubt about that. And until that healing comes, whether it is at my at the coming of the Lord, if it is at the moment when I go to be with the Lord, if it is somewhere before that through medical means or through a miraculous work of God, help me in the meantime to negate the effects as much as I possibly can of what that disease is doing to my body. And what I think Jesus is telling us here when it comes to our sin is that God has already forgiven us and he is in the process through sanctification, through growth in him of taking our sin away and our sin will be completely taken away by him one day. But what we have to pray and what we have to ask and what we have to seek is Lord in the between, in the already not yet, here in this part in between, Lord help me as much as humanly possible through your power and your strength and your grace and your goodness to mitigate, to stop the effects of sin on my life as much as I possibly can. And in relation to other people, one of the ways to do that is to not jump to conclusions about them and not put on them a requirement of judgment that I would never want put on me. Don't judge. Jesus tells us, don't look at someone, size them up and write them off. Well, how do you know if you're doing that? Well, I came up with just four things that I thought we could ask the question, how to judge if I'm judging. Judging if I'm judging. And the first one is this, and this is, I think all these come from Scripture. I can judge that I'm judging if I become more enraged by someone else's sin than I am embarrassed by my own. When I become more enraged by what somebody else is doing with their sin, then I am embarrassed, then I am concerned, then I am problematic about my own sin. Galatians 6.1 says this about the way we should react when we catch somebody in any wrongdoing. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. With a gentleness, with a care, with a love, watching out that we aren't tempted. Here I don't think necessarily meant tempted to do what they're doing. I think it means tempted to judge or tempted to be harsh or tempted to over-examine. The first way you can tell whether you're judging someone is if you're more enraged by their sin 
than embarrassed by your own. Secondly, you can tell if you're judging by the, your unwillingness to forgive. Are you failing to forgive? The whole point of judging, and you think about when we get back and the tie-in with the rest of this um, with this Sermon on the Mount, remember chapter 5, when we're all the way back at the Beatitudes at the beginning of this, when he talks about, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And it says, your heavenly Father will forgive you as you forgive others. The point we made there and the point that is made here is that if you are unwilling to forgive other people, then you have not fully understood what God has done for you. And when you fail to forgive, you're holding something over somebody when God himself has forgiven you of so much. When you're failing to forgive, that you're looking at them and you're expecting them. I don't know if you need another explanation or another um, confession or another repentance or another groveling. But you're trying to hold power over them and what you're allowing is for them to hold power over you because you are not realizing what God has already done for you should flow through you to other people. Thirdly, how to know if you're judging other people. Do you cut people off with whom you disagree? Aren't you glad we don't do this in our society anymore? I don't even know why I put it on the list. We just walk around and go, I may not agree with you politically, but man, I love you and I will talk to you all the time in a civil way and never yell at you on social media. Aren't you glad our politician in Washington practiced this? We live in a corrosive culture that teaches us, if you're not 100% for me, you are against me. And we have to get to a place where we love people more than we love positions. We have to get to a place where our number one priority is not the establishment and expansion of a political party or of a series of platforms or of ideas, but that our number one priority is the establishment and extension of the kingdom of God and the people who are part of it. And so when we cut off people with whom we disagree with, we are not allowing ourselves to engage in discussion and love people as Christ loved us. Again, aren't we glad God did not cut us off when we did not agree with Him? Now here's the thing about that particular relationship. God's always right. Sometimes I cut people off that I don't agree with. If I were to do that, I would not be right. And the fourth way to tell or to judge if you're judging is this. Are you engaged in gossip? Let me just tell you, as your pastor, this is an area I've probably failed us as a church. Because I don't talk about it enough. Scripture makes it very clear that gossip, talking about people without them present, particularly in a negative way, is unhealthy and sinful and wrong. And when you look at the list of sins, it's right next to murder and adultery. And if you were to list out the most heinous sins around us, my guess is gossip wouldn't make you top ten. And yet there it is in all of the scriptures that talk about sin that makes vice list. Gossip is almost always included. 
The reason that that is particularly devastating is it is judging people without a chance of them to defend themselves and it's judging people without a chance for change. And in the church, we have to be particularly careful because a lot of times gossip masks itself as prayer request or Christian concern. I'm really worried about so-and-so. I cannot believe what they did. Or I'm really worried about so-and-so's son. Did you hear what happened the other day? Or we need to pray for her because her daughter did some things that you're not going to believe. If you're more enraged by someone else's sin than embarrassed or, under, or concerned about your own, if you're not forgiving people, if you're cutting off people with whom you disagree, and if gossip is a regular part of your life, then you are in violation of what Jesus says when he says, do not judge. But judgment is not the only problem that Jesus talks about in these verses. In fact... There's the one problem of sizing somebody up and writing them off. But the second problem Jesus talks about in here that doesn't get mentioned as much in this passage is that sometimes we size people up and we walk away. And that's just as problematic. Notice what he says here. He says, why do you look at your brother at the splinter in their eye, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own hypocrites. And then he tells us in verse five, first, take the beam of wood out of your eye. And then he continues, right? There's no period. There's no stop. That's not the end of the verses. What he says is, and then, once you have taken the beam clearly out of your eye, then you should get the speck out of your brother's eye. Right? And so he's not saying, hey, don't ever, in discernment and looking at someone and seeing a problem they have, say, I'm just walking away from that. That's not my job. That's not my responsibility. Jesus said, don't judge. I'm not going to judge here. What he says is make sure your heart and your motives are right. Make sure there's no jealousy there that is leading you to this conversation. Make sure there's no self-righteousness of, hey, I'm right, you're wrong. Make sure it comes from a heart of concern and love and desire for that person and for what God can do in their lives. And then you look at them and say, hey, can I tell you, as a sinful person, as somebody that also struggles with some things, that I've noticed this about you. They have noticed this in your life. I'm just wondering where you are with that, what God's doing in the midst of that, how I can help you there. You don't just let them go on their merry way because that is not loving at all. Back to the woman caught in adultery story, right? So Jesus has them all around. He writes on the ground, what, you know, let you without first, without sin throw the first stone. They walk away. Jesus keeps writing. And then it says it's just him and the woman, right? They're the only two left. And when it's just him and the woman there, what does he say to her? He says, first of all, where are your condemners? And they're saying, well, they're not here. And he says, neither do I condemn you, okay? But then what's the next thing he says? Go and sin no more. He doesn't let it be like, you're fine, good, everything's great, just go keep doing what you're doing. No. He speaks directly to the issue, looks at her and says, go and sin no more, don't do that again. 
And for us to have someone that we see that is obviously against what God would want. Now, listen, let me just make very clear here. All right. I'm not talking about personal preferences you have about way people act. I'm talking about biblical, scriptural things that you see in their lives that are not aligned with the message of God's word and that need to be corrected. In those moments, you don't just simply walk away. That is not Loving. When it calls us to love our neighbor, loving our neighbor means having difficult conversations with them sometimes. Amen? I mean, you think about this in a parenting sense. If I find out one of my beautiful, great children, none of whom are perfect, none of yours are either. Amen? All right? I mean, sometimes when I think about, and I talk about the sinfulness and all of that built into humanity, I think back to my own salvation. I was saved when I was nine years old. I'm blessed that God rescued me at that early of an age and thankful that I was brought up in a home and a church that encouraged me to seek out the ways of the Lord. And so at age nine, you think, well, how much bad stuff can a nine-year-old really do? And as a kid, you think, not a lot. As a parent, you're like, well, amen. If you don't say amen, parents, you're just lying to yourself, all right? And if we allowed, as parents, if Susan and I did not correct where correction needed to be done, we would not, we would be committing parental malpractice. If God, it tells us in Hebrews, disciplines those he loved. If God allowed me to go down paths that were not good for me and didn't correct me, that would not be very loving. And Jesus says here that once the log is moved, I mean, once you can see clearly now and the plank is gone, then you look at the speck in your neighbor's eye and you help. Now here's where that weird verse 6 comes in. Verse 6, this idea, don't give to what is, what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs or they will trample them under their feet, turn and tear you to pieces. Here's what he's basically saying is that one of the most precious things that you have in in that era were pearls. They were considered valuable beyond value. They were they were immeasurable in their value oftentimes. And he said, if you've got a a thing of pearls, you're not going to throw it into the pig pen and let them have at it because they won't understand what they are. They don't understand the value of it. They can't sense the value of it. They may try to eat it. And when it's not good for food, they may trample on them. Or you're not going to give something holy, perhaps like something that would have been dedicated to the Lord, dedicated to the temple food, to dogs. Now, I need you to get out of your mind the precious dog you have at home all right i have a dog we love stella we have misty before that we have dogs we are dog people apparently we're cat people now too but that's not got my full approval yet but we're dog people and we have this sense oh cute little my cute little mini pomapoo that is not what they understood to be dogs in their day in their day dogs were feral wild packs of animals Wolves that roamed the streets and were unclean. Jesus says, you're not going to take something holy and give it to them. The point that he's making is there is no reason to give to someone that can't understand the value of what you're giving them to give that to them. So, for instance, 
Um, our family, now all six of us, love steak. We love steak meals. We love grilling steak and eating steak. But for when, when Susan and I first started having children, we had first had Eli and Luke and then Maddie and Ava, there is a point in their lives when they do not understand the value of steak. And instead of paying twelve ninety nine a pound for them to eat some ribeye, they got hot dogs. We would grill a couple of steaks and a couple of hot dogs, and they were perfectly fine with that. If I did that today, I'd be eating the hot dogs because there'd be a revolt at the house. Right? They understand the value of it. So what does that mean for our passage? What does Jesus mean for us? This is what he means. That when you confront, when you talk to someone, make sure you use discernment with how you do that. It means that you don't have to pull out the pull out the full artillery and go after them as hard as you can about their sin. That you can come up with creative, alternative, loving ways to say, how can I help you? How can I assist? How can I walk with you through this until they're ready to receive the full dose? It also means that sometimes you're talking, and I think that this is implied because of some of the connotations with Gentiles, that there are messages of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sometimes the way to share the gospel with somebody is not to come full force, um, Southern Baptist, fire and brimstone evangelist Adam on the front end. That there are ways to walk with them, show them, help them to understand and give them what they can chew and understand now. And then as that develops, they become people that can understand more. And so Jesus says it's it's not good to walk away from someone with sin, but do it with discernment. Third thing that we're done, that we see here and we're done. The third thing he tells us not to do, and so he tells us, don't look at somebody and write them up. Don't also shape, you know, look at them and then just walk away. And the third thing is for you and me on this end. Don't refuse to receive criticism. We need to be willing to be criticized. Anytime you and I come in contact with someone that brings up sin or the speck or the log in our own eye, we have our inner defense attorney rise up and defend us. And even if it's coming from not a good place from the other person, we need to be willing, and that's part of this thing with the plank in our eye, we need to be willing to hear when someone brings loving, gentle correction in our lives. Or even if they don't bring it in loving, gentle ways, that we need to be willing to hear what they have to say. We need to be willing and able to choose to do what God's called us to do. So as we close today, I really think there are three Things that God is calling us to do. For each of the things that we talked about, and the first is this. If you're someone who has sized up somebody else and written them off, you need to repent. You need to go to the Lord and repent. You also may need to go and repair, but you need to repent first. God, I am sorry that I did not believe that you could work in their lives. And perhaps sometimes in the lives of our children, in the lives of our friends, in the lives of our neighbors, the first place we should always run is to the Lord in the midst of that with a prayer of asking Him to change them, to help them, to help them see. The second group that's in there are those of you that may have sized somebody up and walked away and maybe today God is calling you to confront. To actually show someone in a loving Christian brother or sister type of way 
to talk to them about what you see as the speck. Make sure that your own life is right and that you're not coming from a place of jealousy or self-righteousness, but you need to confront. And then for the third thing, if you've received criticism, you may need to just listen. If you refuse to receive criticism, repent of that and listen. Respond to the Lord in the way that He would call you. One of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture, do not judge. But it's not as simple and cut and dry as that. So today I want to encourage you to just seek your own heart and ask the Lord where it is in those three ways you need to find correction. Let's pray together.